0: I trust that you do. If you can open with me to the gospel of John chapter 2, the gospel of John chapter 2, and welcome to week 2 of a new series that has us walking through um, the miracles of Jesus. We're very creative because we're calling this series miracles. Um, Just couldn't think of a better uh, uh, name to call it, so we're walking through And last week, we began with the miracle of all miracles or the pinnacle of miracles, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And the reason we started there is because we said this. If the tomb is empty, if Jesus rose from the dead, then anything is possible. Anything is possible. Anything, any other miracle we're going to look at is possible because Jesus can do the greater than he can do everything else. And then in our lives Everything that God would ask us to do is possible. And we defined, last week, we defined a miracle this way. A miracle is what happens when the unexplainable runs into the undeniable. A miracle is what happens when the unexplainable runs into the undeniable. Or C.S. Lewis put it this way. A miracle is more than something unusual, though in ordinary speech we might call such events miracles. Miracles. A true miracle is something beyond man's intellectual or scientific ability to accomplish. It's not natural, it is supernatural. This is the essence of miracles, supernatural event. And we often act like we don't know much about miracles, but right now, even though it might feel like we're just sitting still, um, it is an illusion of miraculous um, proportions. Think about this: the the Earth. The reality is, the planet Earth is spinning around its axis at a speed of one thousand forty miles per hour. We're also speeding through space at an average velocity of sixty-seven thousand one hundred and eight miles per hour, which is not just faster than a speeding bullet, but eighty-seven times faster than the speed of sound. On a day that you don't feel like you get much done. Um, just understand this. Remind yourself that you traveled 1.6 million miles that day. So the next time you sit down and go, I didn't get much done today. Well, at least 1.6 million miles you got done. Um, you made that, or that, that happened in your life. And then to top things off, the Milky Way galaxy that we're part of is spinning like a top at the mind-boggling rate of 515,000 miles per, per hour. Now, is that miraculous to God? No, that's God being God. But is it to us? Yes. Yes, it's a picture of we can't do that. Only God can do that. But then think about this. When was the last time you thanked God for keeping you in orbit? When was the last time you thanked God? I'm guessing never. I'm guessing um, there's never been a time where at the end of the day you said, Lord, I wasn't sure we were going to make the full rotation today, but you did it. I mean, most of us, we don't think that way. It's not something we pray about. And let me tell you why. God is so good at being God that we often take him for granted. God is so good at what he does that we take him for granted, even the miraculous. And here's what I know. Here's what's interesting. Every one of us has been in places where we have sought and wanted a miracle. All of us have. We want miracles We just don't want to be put in a situation where we need a miracle. So think about that. We want miracles. We just hate being in situations where we we need one or where we ask God for one. Yet, our God is a God of the miraculous. He is a God of miracles. He is a God that will blow our minds with his power and with his faithfulness. I think of Oliver Wendell Holmes that once said that a mind stretched by a new idea never returns to its original shape. And I believe and I'm hoping and praying that that's what God will do during this series. That God will take our minds and he will blow our minds with his power, with his miraculous um, ways. And that our minds would never come back. That we would trust God more and more to do what only God can do. Yet let me say this. Let me give a little bit of advice from the beginning of this series. The whole point of this series is not for us to seek miracles. The whole point of this series is for us to seek Jesus. We want to seek the miraculous one. And we believe this. If we seek Jesus, we will find ourselves in the midst of the miraculous. If you seek him, you'll find yourself in the middle of a miracle. First of all, salvation. It amazes me how most Christians, if you have a conversation with them and you ask them the great miracles of their life, they don't mention salvation. And salvation is the greatest miracle that man could ever experience. The greatest miracle is not that God heals you of cancer. It's that God took your dead soul and brought it to life. That is the miracle of all miracles. So this morning what we're going to do is we're going to descend from the pinnacle of all miracles, the resurrection, and we're going to start from the beginning. Meaning we're going to begin with the first recorded miracle of Jesus in the Bible, which is found in John chapter 2 where Jesus turns water into wine. And see what in the world we can learn um, from Christ, what in the world we can hear From that. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we honor God's word together. We're going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 2, and then we're going to dive in and see where God takes us. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, Let me just go ahead and say this, do not try that at home. I have tried that with my mother, and she did not respond quite like Mary did. So just don't do it. Only Jesus can do that, woman. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Let's pray together. Oh God, that is our prayer today, that we would see your glory and that we would believe in you more and more today. Help us to see you for who you are. Help us to believe that you can do all the things your word says you can do. There are some in this room right now, God, that's, Lord, we're so in need of a miracle. Lord, help us to believe that you are a God who can accomplish. And what we are asking is that you would be willing to. Just have your way in this time together. Speak to us By your Spirit, Holy Spirit, reveal to us truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. So let me begin just kind of by setting the scene here. So Jesus and his disciples are at a wedding, and the host runs out of wine. That might not seem like a big deal to us at all. I mean, I think of, I've been at weddings where I performed, and I wish they would have run out of wine. So I can think of those times. Yet in this culture that we're reading about, to run out of wine would have been a public humiliation. It would have turned a very big day into a very bad day. Not just for the couple, but for their family, and especially for the groom. Because it was his job to make sure they had enough wine. I I can just imagine the bride going, you had one job. You had one job and you blew it. And then the the groom going, I I thought we had enough. I thought we'd be able to to do it. I mean, just if there's one day that you want to be perfect, it's what? The wedding day. You want it to be perfect. And just a little more context. Jewish weddings had three stages. There was the... um, the stage or the engagement stage, which took at least a year before the wedding celebration. This engagement could only be broken by divorce, but yet the marriage was still not consummated. Then the second phase was the procession where the groom and his friends would go and get the bride and her family. And they would joyfully return back to the home that the groom had prepared for them. And then the third stage, which we just read about, was the wedding feast, which could last up to seven days days, which just shows you better be a good planner um, when you think about what's coming. It was a major social event for the community. But oddly enough, the very first miracle that Jesus chooses to perform was not about saving a life. It was about saving someone's reputation. Just think about that. The first miracle wasn't saving a life. It was saving someone's reputation. And strangely enough, as we read about in verse 11, it was about the glory of Jesus So before we dive in, I want to just pause for a second, and I want to walk through something that's going to be a little uncomfortable for some of us today, and maybe probably for all of us today, and it's for a good reason. I want us to quickly take on the question, is it a sin to drink alcohol? And what we know is this, when it comes to alcohol, when it comes to Jesus, many people try to downplay the, the content and try to pretend like Jesus, like any good Baptist, was just drinking Welch's grape juice, um, and that was, that was it, and that's kind of the um, as far as people are willing to go, yet it is very clear um, from the passage, from what we know, is that this wine was not grape juice, it was fermented wine. Now, maybe it wasn't as strong as the wine we drink today. It was um, three parts water to one part wine, but it was fermented. And, and just think about this. When often we're faced with that question, when we ask that question in a church, you know, um, is it okay to drink alcohol? There's always two extremes. There's normally those the group that says, no, never is it okay to drink alcohol under any circumstances whatsoever, no. Then you have another group that says, well, it's not a sin, and as long as you don't get drunk, you can do whatever you want to and drink as much as you, you want to. And let me just say this I'm gonna tick off both of those groups today. So I'm an equal opportunity. Both of you are probably gonna be a little ticked at me. Um, and, but the, the, the goal here is not to divide us, the goal here is not to do anything whatsoever. The goal is just to tell you what the Word of God says. And I love the words of John Piper. He has a way of putting things the way I wouldn't, but he says, The first answer that I give to the question, is it a sin to drink alcohol? is the same answer I give to the question, is it a sin to drink water? Think about that. Is it a sin to drink water? And he says, it could be. Drinking water when you should be giving a glass to someone else in need is a sin. Drinking water after someone has warned you it's contaminated with poison and it can kill you would be a sin of pride and stupidity. So the quick answer, he says, is that no, it's not a sin to drink alcohol. I would agree with that. It's not a sin. The Bible never declares it to be a sin to drink alcohol. And thankfully, the Bible isn't silent on the issue of, of drinking. A simple search on through the Word of God, and you'll quickly find Scripture after Scripture with tons of advice on alcohol. Some, um, in, in a nutshell, kind of to put it there, the Bible doesn't condemn drinking. In some cases, the Bible says that um, the wine cheers the heart. But the Bible, as we know it, does, hear this, the Bible does condemn drunkenness. And the Bible gives a whole lot of warnings about strong um, drink and about wine. In his letter to the Ephesians, the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 5, Do not be drunk with wine, which is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Just understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying that if we are, are not careful... That wine or alcohol can become a cheap substitute for being filled with the Spirit of God. That's what he's saying. That it can become a cheap substitute for being filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul couldn't be any clearer. Just think about what the Bible says. Let me give you just three guidelines real quick. And I'm not, this is not exhaustive here, but just three guidelines. The first is this. Refuse to be mastered by alcohol. If you do drink, drink moderately. 1 Corinthians 6.12 gives that um, prescription. Drink because you have the freedom to do so, but don't let your freedom lead to your bondage. And what I mean by that is this. There are many Christians who profess a freedom in this area, yet they're not free, they're fettered, meaning they're chained. They say they're free, but they're not free. In fact, let me tell you how they're not free. Maybe you're here today and you're getting mad right now. It would show that there might be a sense where this this picture has a little bit more impact in your life than it should. Or second, avoid being a stumbling block to a weaker brother or sister. You can read this in Romans 14, 15 through 21. So if you're in a situation where you can drink, but someone is with you or could be with you who struggles with alcohol out of your desire for their freedom, don't do it. If your desire for their freedom, do not do it. And then last but not least, determine to pursue Christ as your ultimate pleasure in life. Proverbs 21, 17 or Philippians 1, 21. And what that means is this. Sometimes, and we know people, who sometimes they will escape to alcohol. And they'll do so because their walk with Christ is lukewarm. If you drink in moderation, be careful not to drink as as a means of escape, which can lead to further problems. And what I mean is this, if you need to escape, or, or think of it this way, over the last month or two months, how many times have you uttered the words, I just need a drink, and how many times have you uttered the word, I just need to get in the word of God? Those two things might show you where you're, where you're turning for your escape. Let Jesus be your escape. Let the word of God be your escape. I love the words of G.K. Chesterton. It says, drink because you are happy, but never because you're miserable. Never drink when you are wretched without it, or you will be like the gray-faced gin drinker in the slum. But drink when you will be happy without it, and you will be like the laughing peasant of Italy. Never drink because you need it, For this is rational drinking and the way to death and hell, but drink because you do not need it. This is irrational drinking and the ancient health of the world. Let me just kind of make it personal real quick, and I probably should have started here. Personally, um, as your pastor, I do not drink. Now, I was raised that way, so that's the very first thing. I was raised that way. Um, I'm not saying I've never um, taken a drink. I had a mother, though, who prayed for me, and everything I ever did blew up in my face. I mean, blew up in my face and um, never wanted to do it again. I mean, try it one time, it blows up. And I said, never touching that stuff again. And every, everything, everything that I tried blew up in my, my face. But I also think about, you know, me, me and Misty, we, we have this, this mutual understanding that we do not drink. And the reason um, we do not is, um, first of all, because we're raised that way. Second of all, because we want to um, be a picture of freedom for other people. That other people can be free? I know, I, and I, I'm sitting here and I'm thinking about Brother Joe here who has a, a testimony that comes from alcoholism. The, the worst thing I could do is to say, hey, Brother Joe, let's go get a beer. I mean, that's the worst thing I could do in that moment. No, I want to live my life to offer him freedom and he's offering other people freedom and what Christ can, can do. So I think about that standpoint, and then I also think about this. So I want to offer people freedom, but at the same time, I don't want to um, try to impose what God, the, the convictions that God has put on me, on other people saying, because God has made this calling in my life, he must, without a doubt, make it in yours. I don't want to presume on what God has told me on anyone in, in this room. I just want to say this, we live in a context context. We live in a context, meaning in the United States of America, that everything we do, we do to excess. We eat to excess. We drink to excess. We party to excess. We spend to excess. Everything we do, we do it more than we should, right? I mean, it's the the world that is the context by which we live in. So we need to be careful. Laying that out there. Now, Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that I will never take a drink. Uh, You know, there was a situation back in 2007 that I was in on a mission trip. You've heard this story before. We were in Haiti. Um, We were um, offered communion at a church service. I had just preached a message, and they give us this cup, and I'm like, this doesn't smell right. This doesn't smell like grape juice. And I come to realize that this is Haitian moonshine and this big cup. And I'm like, I mean, not big cup, but it's like this. And I'm like, what am I going to do? And I was like, you know what? I'm not going to offend my brothers and sisters so I, I drank it, it burned going down, and 12 years later, I still burp it up today, and it's still as hot as ever, you know, but I'm sitting there and I drink it, and I had, you know, I'm like, get over it, and of course, I look over at Brother Eric, and he's going, <laughs> you know, and, okay, that... That may or may not have happened, but it's so funny for the story that I'll, I'll go with it. But, you know, in, in, in those contexts, I'm not going to offend my brothers and sisters. If I ever go to, to Germany on a mission trip, I'm not going to offend my brothers and sisters in, in, in that way. So just, you know, and, and some, some of you are sitting here today going, you didn't go far enough. Others of you sitting here going, you went way too far in, in this. Here's what I'm, I'm saying. Be careful. Alcohol can be a very slippery slope. Be careful how you walk in it. Be careful not to let it make you stumble and fall. And I'll just end with that. Not not the sermon, but just that part. Now, now we're going to move on. Now we're getting to the other stuff. Um, so what I've already said, if you look at verse 11 of chapter 2, what I've already said is this. Um, Verse 11 shows us that this miracle is not just about helping Jesus save face. This miracle is about Jesus manifesting his own glory. He's revealing his own glory so that his disciples would believe more and more in him. So what I want to do is I want us to quickly this morning look at three ways by which, according to John 2, Jesus manifested his own glory, showing himself for who he is. The first is this. Number one, Jesus manifested his glory as an obedient son. As an obedient son, which is going to sound really weird because he looks at his mother after she said they have no wine. And he says, woman, what does that have to do with me? How is that an obedient son? And think about this. Right before Jesus recorded his recorded first miracle, Jesus exalts his sonship, not to his earthly mother, but to his heavenly father. That's what I mean. An obedient son, he was now saying, of all things, I'm obeying you, dad. You, my heavenly father, and not you, mom, my earthly mother. Just think about those words. Woman, what do you want? Well, what does this have to do with me? Listen, we don't get to say that. You don't get to say that. If you're the son of God, you can say that. But since we're not, we don't get to say that. Ever. But when we think about that use of the word woman, it wasn't disrespectful in this culture to, to say those words. So to say woman to someone, it wasn't disrespectful. In fact, from the cross in John 19, Jesus used those words again um, to Mary and he spoke tenderly to her. But what, it, what, it, what kind of what was weird was that it was um, not common in that culture for you to address your mother that way. So there's definitely a rebuke here where Jesus says, what does this have to do with me? There's kind of a rebuke where five other times that phrase, what does this have to do with me, is found in the New Testament. And all five times it's a demon speaking to Jesus. So Think of it like this. So Jesus would come into the demon's territory, which was really Jesus' territory. The demons did not like what Jesus was trying to press on them. So they would say, what does this have to do with you, O son of God? And so they're saying, don't press here. We don't want you pressing here. And that's what Jesus is saying here to his mother. Mom, why are you pressing in here? This is none of your business. You're pressing where you shouldn't be pressing. But then in another sense, we see that it becomes very clear that Jesus, as the eldest son, is now providing and caring for Mary. We don't read about Joseph anymore, and most scholars believe that Joseph is now dead. And because he's dead in Jewish custom, Jesus, as the eldest son, is now responsible for caring for his mother. So if his mother has a need, who does she go to? Jesus. And who better to go to than him? And it seems like, and we know here, that Mary expected Jesus to do something, right? We just don't know what she expected him to do. But we're told that Jesus didn't approve of what she said. Kind of like, put it this way... If you're sent by God to a mission on earth to save mankind in their sin, and your mom is trying to get you off your mission, then you rebuke your mom. That's kind of the picture here. Is, is, um, Jesus is making it very clear that he is now free from her authority, and he is giving himself to the authority of his heavenly father. He is finished with his mother's earthly business, and he is giving himself to his father's heavenly business. Or D.A. Carson put it this way. Mary could no longer view him as other mothers viewed their sons. She must no longer be allowed the prerogatives of motherhood. It's a remarkable fact everywhere that Mary appears during the course of Jesus' ministry. Jesus establishes distance between them. And granted, as I'm speaking these words, I can feel the, the kind of glares that are coming from moms in this room. Going, that's not right. You better. I mean, I feel your glares. I'm just trying not to make eye contact with any of the moms in this room. But just understand, Jesus is making it clear in this moment that there can be no other competing controls in his life. He is giving himself totally to his father. Yet what makes this so significant and what makes this so strange, follow with me here, is that Jesus still chooses to take care of the problem by doing a miracle. I mean, Jesus could have just said, got it, Mom. I'm right on it. I'm going to make it happen. That's what he did. He immediately performed a miracle, but that's not what he said. He wanted to make it very clear, Mom, this isn't about what you want me to do. This is about what God the Father wants me to do. And then for us, follow with me. Look at verse 5. For us, what becomes amazingly important is not just what Jesus says, but what Mary says. In verse 5, it says, his mother said to the servants... So she, she didn't let this rebuke affect her at all. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. You know what I call that? That's good advice. In fact, let me give that advice to you today. Whatever Jesus tells you, do it. Whatever Jesus tells you, do it. Do it. Do whatever he tells you. Are you doing what he tells you? How has he spoken to you? How are you responding to it? So Jesus manifested his glory as an obedient son. But then secondly, Jesus manifested his glory as the ultimate purifier. And so let's start with the phrase in verse 4. Jesus says and uses these words, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time Jesus uses this phrase in the book of John. But he would use it, I think, eight other times in the gospel. And every time Jesus said, my hour hasn't come, what Jesus was saying is this. His hour was the hour of death when he would die for sinners. So he's saying that this miracle is pointing beyond just a earthly miracle to something even greater. Meaning, put it like this. Jesus didn't just come to earth to change water into wine. Jesus came to earth to change sinners into saints. He came to earth to change dead into living That's why he came to earth to change those who were his enemies into not just his friends, but his sons and his daughters. This is why he came. And we praise God for why he came. And then we're introduced to six stone jars. Look at verses six and seven with me. It says Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. So these large um, jars were set aside for what was called ritual cleansing um, in Jewish worship practices. Or put it like this, these um, ceremonial jars represented cleanliness. And so people were, it was a, not part of the commands that we see in the Word of God. It was an added man-made law. that the the Pharisees added on in a very real way. Um, Before you eat, you wash your hands. If you read Mark 7, the disciples got in trouble because they didn't do that. Apparently they were um, dirty men who just went to the table and started eating without washing their hands. And the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, how dare they? What are they doing? How dare they do this? But here's what it shows us. Judaism at that time was more concerned with outward cleansing than they were with the inward heart. And John recognizes and records something amazing. He says there were just six stone jars. Do you know what the number six means in the Bible? The number six is is the number of what? Number of man. So man was made on the sixth day. Man is only supposed to work for, according to the Old Testament, um, six days the sixth commandment man should not murder man and here you have six water pots and john tells us that they were according to the manner of purification of the jews which means they were for they were a religious instrument and guess what he tells us they're empty they're empty you know what that means don't miss this Our religion, any attempt that you and I make to get to God will not leave us full. It will always leave us empty. Any any attempt that we make to try to find ourselves good in the eyes of God will not fill us up, but will always leave us empty before him. And then think about it like this. Jesus then tells these servants to take these jars and to go fill them up with water. Now, I don't know about you, but my reaction would have been, why? We're, we're not lacking water, Jesus. We're lacking wine. We, we didn't run out of water. I don't know why you would want us to get water, but yet they went. And not only did they go, but they filled these jars up to the brim. Why would they do that? In my mind, I think of this. They, Jesus, we don't know what you're up to. We don't know what you're doing You tell us to do it, we're going to do it, and we're going to fill it up all the way because we don't want anything else to get in the way. We don't want anyone else to be able to add anything to what you're doing. So therefore, we're going to fill it all the way up to the brim, and you've got to come through. And that's exactly what Jesus did. And here's a great lesson here. Don't miss this. If you, like the servants, do the little things like they're big things, then God will do really big things like they're very little things. When we do little things like they're big things, God will do big things like they're little things. And then don't miss this lesson. Sometimes the natural has to happen first so that God can come through with the supernatural. Meaning sometimes it's our job to do what God has called us to do even though we don't understand it, even though we might look stupid if we do it, and yet we do it naturally, and then God comes through supernaturally. But we have to take that first step of obedience, and then God will come through because God always comes through and this might seem like the least significant of all the miracles in fact think about this Jesus never says anything Jesus doesn't look at these stone jars and go and says wine and gets everybody's attention no he just willed that the water be wine and said go serve it and that was it that was it yet don't miss this Jesus shows himself as the God who shows up when we get empty. He shows up when we run out. And there are some of us in this room this morning, you are on empty. You're on empty. You're doing things as much as you can do in your own strength, in your own power, in your own ability, and you just can't. And the reason why you can't is because you were never meant to. You were never meant to. We were meant to... Rest all that we are upon the one who can. And he shows up when we run out. And he fills us. And then he pours us out for his glory. And then he fills us again and pours us out yet again. Jesus manifests his glory as the ultimate purifier. And then lastly, lastly, Jesus manifested his glory as an omnipotent bridegroom as an omnipotent bridegroom. So the first miracle that Jesus does is to complete what the bridegroom or what the groom at the wedding didn't complete. So look at verses 9 through 11. It says, When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Just think about that. So this master of the uh, the feast, master of the ceremonies, calls the groom and says, most people serve the best first and then they give the cheap stuff, the box stuff. But that's not what you have done. You've saved the best until now. And of course, the point is, no, he didn't. He let it run out, right? He let it run out. He let the wine run out. He did not plan sufficiently. And that's the way all the grooms are of this earth, or even to put it better, all earthly spouses fail to be all we ought to be all the time. Let me say it again. All earthly spouses in this room and in this world, we fail to be all that we ought to be. Right? We fail to be all that we ought to be. But Jesus is the perfect, all-providing, omnipotent bridegroom. He never fails. Out of water comes wine. And although, I love this, although the the master of the feast enjoyed this wine, he had no idea where it came from, but the servants did. There's another lesson here. If you're seeking the greatest position there is, you might miss what Christ is doing. But if you put yourself at a servant, at his feet, and you're willing to do whatever it is that he tells you to do, you will see him and you will experience more of him. And the beautiful picture here is that wine in the the Bible is a picture of joy. That Jesus came to this earth to bring us transforming joy of our salvation and through salvation. And this is why we run out today. When we run out today, when we fail in our wisdom, when we fail in our strength, when we fail in our ability, when we fall short of the glory of God, as the word says all of us have, there is an omnipotent bridegroom who never runs out. There's one who never runs out of joy, That fills us. He never runs out of grace that covers us. He never runs out of love that pours out on us. He never ever runs out. Jesus. There's never a moment where Jesus says. Didn't plan that one out. Let that one go. Sorry for your luck. Jesus never does that. He has all situations planned. The question is will we trust him? He will provide for us. Just do what he tells you. Please hear this this morning. Jesus will provide for you. Just do what he says, do what he tells you. Leon Morris said this this particular miracle signifies that there is a transforming power associated with Jesus. He changes the water of Judaism into the wine of Christianity. The water of Christlessness into the wine of the richness and fullness of eternal life in Christ. He changes the water of the law into the wine of the gospel. It's what Jesus came to do. Isn't that amazing? And then look at verse 11. Once again, it says this, and I put it on the screen. This is the first of his signs. It's amazing to me that John did not call these things miracles. He called them signs. And the reason he called them signs is because he tells us, and we read this last week, in John 20, 30 and 31, John tells us why he wrote his gospel. John says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus Christ is, or Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John says, I included the signs that I included so that you might believe. And then look at verse 11. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And what was the effect? And his disciples believed in him. And Here's the, here's the weird thing. Don't miss this. His disciples had already believed in him. So this isn't their first belief. They had already believed in Him. But here's the point that John is trying to make. Faith isn't just a one time and you're done kind of thing. No, we believe Jesus and we are saved. And then guess what we do? We keep believing Him. We don't just believe and are saved and then we just stop believing. No, we believe Him for our salvation. And then we take the next step. We believe. And the next step. We believe and the next step. And all we're doing is we're growing more and more and more in our belief of him. Let me just end this way this morning. There might be some here today who are like those six water pots. You're here. You're close to the presence of Christ, but you are empty. You're empty and you're empty because you don't know the joy that only Christ can give. Or you're empty because you are cut off from God because of your sin and you've never turned to the Savior. May today be the day that you do that. May the day be the day that you turn from your sin, turn from trusting in yourself and turn to Jesus Christ. And let me just also say this, others might be in this room and maybe you have trusted Christ, yet your life is not filled with abundant joy. You don't have the joy of salvation that Psalm 51 talks about You've been cut off from that. And let me tell you how you get it. You see more of his glory and you believe more of what he says. So the question becomes this. What is he telling you to do? Whatever Jesus is saying today, do it. Do it. Whatever it is that he's telling you to do. Don't don't say, I'll think about it. Because the second you say, I'm thinking about it, Satan goes, yes. Because Satan will get your mind off of it. Whatever it is that he's telling you to do, do it now. Go ahead and I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet. We're going to call the musicians forward as we enter into a time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray together. Father, we thank you for today. Jesus, we thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you for why you came. Not just to turn water into wine, but to turn wicked, rebellious sinners into sons and daughters of God. I pray that if there's any in this room today that that's never happened, that today would be that day. Today would be the day that they cry out to you, Jesus, for salvation. That they would confess that they cannot save themselves. Their religion will leave them empty every single time. Jesus, only you can fill them. Do that today. Lord, I pray for believers all across this room. Jesus, however you are speaking to them today, In the words of Mary, whatever Jesus is saying, do it. Whatever, Jesus, whatever you're telling us today, may we do it. Give us the grace to do it. Give us the strength to do it. Give us the boldness to do it. Finish this time, in Jesus' name, amen.